0: Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Johannes Ulrich. Johannes is currently responsible for the SANS Internet Storm Center, or ISC, and the GIAC Gold Program. In 2000, he founded dshield.org, which is now the data collection engine behind ISC. His work with the ISC has been widely recognized, and in 2004, Network World named him one of the 50 most powerful people in the networking industry. Prior to working for SANS, Johannes worked as a lead support engineer for a web development company and as a research physicist. Johannes holds a PhD in physics from SUNY Albany and is based in Jacksonville, Florida. His daily podcast summarizes current security news in a concise format. It's one of my favorite podcasts and I highly recommend you subscribe to it. In this episode, we discuss his start in physics and his switch to cybersecurity, building the SANS Internet Storm Center, security challenges posed by the cloud, teaching for SANS, AI and machine learning, IoT security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Johannes, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Uh, thanks for having me. My, my pleasure. So one of the things I've been itching to ask you since I've been kind of following what you've been doing for a number of years is how did you pivot from being a PhD in physics into information security?
1: Yeah, actually, well, yeah, like I always tell people, it happens uh, with an incident, of course. That's how people usually get into information securities after uh, the incident. Uh, for me, it was uh, pretty simple. Uh, back in the day, in my physics days, I dealt a lot with X-ray optics and uh, wrote a lot of software to remote control experiments, because with these X-rays you usually try to stand a little bit away from the experiment. And uh, along came cable modems. This was sort of mid-90s. Well, of course, I had to have one. Got my cable modem. And now the next step was how can I control my experiment from the comfort of my home? And um, on I went to take my old—I think it was a 386 at the time—turn into a Linux router, back with floppy disks and all the good stuff. Now I got it to work, but uh, what I didn't realize at the time was that back then Linux wasn't just open source. Uh, Linux also was an open mail relay, and it took about a couple of months. You know, back then, the Internet was a lot more peaceful than it is today, uh, but it, it took a while, and someone found it, used it to send spam, and uh, that's when my ISP called me and told me, oh, you probably want to do something about that. So uh, that sort of got me interested at first, and uh, so I set up firewalls and all of the good stuff. Um the the next thing came when I when I actually started looking at my logs and I noticed that sort of everybody out there is attacking me and I didn't really know why. Like back then, I didn't really know about bots and and all of that uh, scanning the internet and such. So well, um, I talked to friends, uh, talked to other people online, and I sort of got the idea. Hey, you know, why don't we collect all of that data and compare it then? that's sort of how i built a uh, D shield uh, which is still up to date, still running fine uh, So so say hey l- l- let's collect firewall logs let's share them and uh, let's see what we all see and uh, that system really became you know a big hit during the warm days and such and uh, still today i use it uh, quite a bit uh, to find new trends and such uh, at the storm center
0: gotcha so you know to to that with with what you did with D-Shield and you're still doing with the Internet Storm Center, you, you have these sensors deployed essentially all over the world, correct? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how, how did that kind of come about? Because it's, it's something that, you know, when you start thinking monitoring the Internet, essentially, how yep. do you kind of go to such a, a large scale, uh, you know, kind of pulse on what's happening with sensors across the world?
1: It, it really just happened, yeah. I put this the shield system out there. Uh, I sort of got it uh, all written and such. I think it was late two thousand. yes, yeah, so it was Thanksgiving. is kind of when I coded my first version there, and um, it, it just happened. Uh, people liked it, uh, word of mouth and such. And uh, yeah, I had more and more people sign up for it, and yeah, got that pulse on uh, what I call sort of the background radiation of the internet. You know, sort of the attacks that everybody's seeing out there.
0: In, in, I guess, over time, have you seen particular trends or changes with the types of
1: attacks or has there been some level of consistency over time? There has been some consistency, but also some changes. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the worms originally, um, the there was like the, the Nimda, Code rats, sort of those big worms. Uh, they were, you know, they caused a lot of disruption early on as we started up uh, with uh, D-Shield. Later it became more bots, which of course are a little bit more focused. Attacks, of course, then shift more to the client side, and we didn't really see sort of this initial... Exploits as much anymore. It also changed our setup a little bit you know, in the recent years. We, for example, collected more web logs because uh, the the blind scanning for open ports. Uh, we see we still see that, and that that still happens. That's of the consistency. Uh, but in addition to that, there are also attacks against web applications that you know, really are a big component now of this in a background radiation, and that's. That's sort of what we' are trying to capture now with uh, these honeypot uh, setups that that we are now using
0: and how many I guess how many of the honeypot setups do you
1: have kind of currently running? I think it's about a hundred or so that uh, people are running at this point honeypots the sensors uh, changes like the, the just as plain firewall sensors are more than that um, so on a monthly basis it's probably about a thousand submitters or so. Uh, we cover about uh, 100 to 200,000 IP addresses, some of them run in rather large networks. They may submit data or firewall logs uh, from, from large networks, not just from a single IP address.
0: Gotcha. Now, how did the transition go from when you were doing it with DSHIELD on your own to bringing it to SANS and becoming kind of the Internet storm centers we've come to know today?
1: Yeah, around the same time when I started with the shield.org, uh, Sans had a similar but different effort. They called it incense.org. Um, incense.org actually was started in 99. And uh, the idea was to create an information sharing community uh, around Y2K problems, uh, security problems related to Y2K. Uh, after Y2K, they briefly shut down the site, but uh, people actually liked it, so uh, they brought it back. And it was really most of the human element. Uh, People could just send in an email, say, hey, I saw this particular event in my network. Uh, What is it all about? And uh, then someone at Sands uh, would post it, like Matt Fierna was back then, John Green, uh, Jeff Stutzman was one of the early ones back then that did that. And um, the community really liked that idea of being able uh, to sort of have an internet help desk in some ways, uh, but also the community then helping you. Now, uh, when SANS became aware of uh, DSHIELD, they sort of asked me if you know, I want to join forces with them. Uh, they started supporting uh, DSHIELD with hardware and such uh, right from the beginning uh, when they sort of found out about it. And then you know, later, they offered me a job to actually run this for them. And then sort of as DSHIELD and this instance.org uh, became more and more one site, uh, that's sort of when the you know, Storm Center essentially was created. So
0: with that, what, what type of hardware do you really, what's the backbone look like to kind of run this type of operation?
1: It's it's pretty simple. Uh, I have a couple of uh, Dell servers. I uh, forgot what the exact model is right now. I never get to see them. They're yeah. in some data center far away. But uh, it's it's a bunch of sort of medium range Dell servers running MySQL on them uh, with a couple smaller servers running the the web app stuff on the front end, so it's it's not really a, a lot of hardware. It's nothing really particularly fancy. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's there's I've always had a kind of envision as maybe like some NAS uh, or NAS um NSA type setup out in Utah with you know arcing powers going between. Okay, because I guess you know it's 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 just mostly it's it's are you actually taking in a lot of pcap data or is it just mostly kind of essentially
1: the metadata analysis? It's it's really metadata. Yeah. Well. Like NSA, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we, we really do very little pure PCAPs. And now some of the web logs and stuff so we collect are richer, and we get more payload and such. Uh, but uh, that was actually part of the beauty initially uh, with just collecting firewall logs. It's fairly nimble. And also, a lot of the privacy issues kind of go away if you're just looking at firewall data. Because essentially you're only looking at connections that are being rejected. So mm. uh, at unsolicited incoming reje- uh, connections, you don't look at any payload, um, which which makes it a little bit easier. Uh, that's sort of why with the with the web logs, we then went more to a honeypot approach uh, to also separate them off somewhat from production data.
0: And I think as anybody who's stood up a sim or any type of uh, external perimeter monitoring. You know, you kind of your hair turns a little white when you first turn that on, when you see the amount of scanning and things that are happening. But you also start seeing trends from particular geographic regions and have those types of trends, I guess, been consistent too, where, you know, where it's been from China, Russia, Southeast Asia. Have there been those types of, you know, maybe bot activity or actually more malicious directed attacks coming from more regions that you see than
1: others? Now, uh, we're really looking at the background radiation set, so we're not really looking much as t- at targeted attacks. We, we see some of them, but that's really sort of our focus. Really, what our data allows you to do is to figure out what's targeted in your network uh, by uh, uh, entering an IP address into our search. If you see that, well, a thousand other people are attacked by the same IP address, it's probably just your average bot, you know, and not a target attack. As far as uh, geographic dependencies i find a real strong correlation with the number of internet users in a particular country (laughs) so um i don't think there is a lot of politics so if you can put in our data Mm -hmm. um, i actually worked with some researchers in singapore and actually going to visit them next week uh, where where that's sort of what they're looking at is or they looked at in the past uh, whether or not sort of local regulation and such is somehow affecting it uh, they saw some of that, uh, but for the most part, if you're connected to the Internet, you're probably going to get infected at some point, and your system is probably going to get used as a platform to attack others. And those are the systems that we really see here.
0: Yeah, I guess I never thought about it that way, is that you know, just the amount of users that can be within a geographic region, it might not be intent. It might just be they were just part of a botnet because they've they've gotten owned some way or another
1: and like if you're if you're looking at sort of nation state attacks first of all, they're not going to use their own i p addresses anyway, and then if you have a few thousand let's say nation state attackers out there, uh, they really disappear in that in that background of all the script kitty hacking in in some ways actually the script is i think provide some kind of smoke screen for them to hide them in there
0: interesting now part of this obviously you know not only with Doing this as a platform within SANS and then a storm center, but you also started teaching uh, With SANS and you've been an instructor for them for a number of years. How did you also start uh, that path of becoming a, an instructor?
1: Well, uh, that really sort of happened while working for SANS you know, I got interest in that and had the opportunity to try it out uh, I'm doing that now for quite a while. I forgot when I exactly started teaching, but it's probably ten years now but uh, Back then, science was a little bit less formal than there are now about that process. You essentially get sort of thrown in the classroom, and if people don't throw anything nasty back at you, kind of, <laughs> today, it's a little bit more controlled. But uh, yeah, it really just uh, happened as part of uh, working for science and being interested in teaching that I got that opportunity.
0: Actually, which, which you know, you're focusing more on the network and intrusion uh, classes. Uh, is that correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, I see myself really more as a defender, uh, also a developer. So I'm teaching the intrusion detection class, which, of course, is somewhat related to the work we're doing at Storm Center and with Shield, looking at packets, looking at network traffic, and then also uh, the defending web applications. Uh, after all, uh, Shield and at Storm Center is a big uh, web application, and uh, it surely does get attacked. Like obviously, I stopped looking at the logs to get some plausible deniability here, Uh, but uh, so far, don't think has been breached yet. So um, it's uh, probably just because nobody understands the code I wrote.
0: <laughs> it it's Obscurity kind of helps with security. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, and I've known several people that have taken Security 503, and they say that's that's someone that's made their, their brain melt the most uh, because of the complexities of really actually looking at things, you know, really pu- pulling apart TCP packets and looking at the headers down to the payload. Yep. Uh, do you think that scares a lot of people away, essentially, from trying to get into maybe more of operations and intrusion detection is, ultimately, you really have to
1: understand the the IP stack pretty well. Right, and that's what I always tell people, is the interesting attacks are the attacks we haven't seen yet. And in order to understand them, you really first have to understand how networks work, how your IDS work, how how attacks work. So, uh, yes, it's not easy to be an analyst uh, on the other hand, I always tell people, "Hey, you know, all you have to do is count to twenty. You know, count all the bytes in the IP header, and it's packets after all. So it's fun, and um, it it is a very interesting class. I I like it a lot. I like teaching it a lot, and uh, I think you know, people walk away from it." Uh, yeah, with a little bit of melted brain here and there, uh, but uh, also an appreciation for these complexities and sort of really the willingness and eagerness to learn more about it, because that's what sort of got me into it. It's, it's that puzzle, you're know, solving that puzzle, what's going on in your network.
0: Yeah, and definitely. I, I don't think people appreciate how much data goes over the wire in small bytes and where, where you can essentially hide things. Um, kind of in plain sight, essentially. I mean, we can even right. hide in a, in a you know, DNS transmission. There's, there's lots of little padding in there where you can stuff data. And if you know how to craft the packets, yep. you, you can be a really good attacker.
1: Yeah, and uh, I usually, you know, that's sort of one of the things I always show in the class is you no know, DNS tunnels. there's sort of a little chapter, about also how you can create DNS tunnels without installing any malware on the system. Uh, so really, just with tools already on the system, uh, which of course, in particular, dangerous these days, where a well defended network usually has, you know, whitelisting for software. I haven't really seen anybody that uh, came up uh, that with a good sort of whitelisting for network traffic approach. Tried it a couple times myself but sort of failed. It's just so varied and so undefined uh, what traffic you actually have in your network. My challenge to students is always uh, collect five minutes of network traffic from your home network and try to explain every packet, why it's there. yeah, you'll fail, but you'll learn. Yeah? <laughs> you'll learn by trying to figure out the remaining packets that you didn't quite, you weren't quite able to to explain. Yeah,
0: yeah certainly. Um, and and I guess to that point too, there's there's got to be more focus. I would imagine that you're seeing within the industry too is is on. You know, we've seen the last year a lot of discussion about machine learning and AI. Mm-hmm. I would imagine for network traffic, that would be areas where there could be a lot of benefit.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that's really sort of my hope that this will develop. Uh, I'm always sad when I see sort of socks. Uh, I remember seeing one a couple of years back where each analyst got 70 alerts per hour. They had to process whatever that meant. Uh, what I tell people is you want to look at maybe 5 or 10 alerts a day, but these should be your high-priority alerts that you then spend some time while you're really researching them and figuring out what happened. And I think there's some promise that AI and machine learning can deliver those high priority alerts, to, and can deliver meaningful alerts to the analyst instead of just you know, 70 alerts an hour that you don't really do anything with. Yeah,
0: and I think there's been a little bit of a, um, you know, is where we have to be careful with the, the marketing and advertising within the industry because I think it's, it's kind of sold as a silver bullet, you know, AI and yeah, machine yeah. learning that is gonna do this, but it's still really gonna, you're still gonna need an
1: analyst. Somebody's, there's gonna have to be gray matter uh, attributed to this, correct? Yeah, and I think uh, there's actually some approach that I think Marcus Ranum uh, sort of coined many, many years back. You know, uh, you're looking for the new, the different stuff. Uh, where, where machine learning can help you is it can identify the, the old stuff. You know? So uh, if you can make the distinction between, hey, what's new, what changed in my network today? Uh, I think that that's where the analysts can use the help. And, and then, then you'll end up with the alerts that actually matter. Gotcha.
0: And you know, when it when it comes to training kind of, you know, that, that SOC analyst, it's kind of a daunting task because they, they do kind of turn things on and there's a lot there. What other types of skill sets do you think are important for a SOC analyst besides just knowing the technical part, but also being able to really kind of dig into the data
1: and know what alerts are worth following? I think it's uh, you know, experience, of course, matters. The more traffic you look at, I think, you know, the more likely you're going to identify the interesting traffic, uh, but then also just uh, sort of the willingness to solve these puzzles. Yeah? Uh, once you sort of see Bioshark and TCB dump as a big text adventure that you sort of have to work your way through, you know, uh, I think uh, that's really sort of the attitude that you need in order to be a successful at analysting.
0: Gotcha. Now with certainly there's more and more infrastructure being pushed to the cloud, um, both from, um, you know, a storage perspective of where things are going to do compute and security. How do you think that's changing the landscape as far as security operations?
1: Yeah, the, the problem, of course, with a lot of the cloud deployments is that you lose a lot of the visibility. The way it usually works in the cloud is that you're responsible for the system, the cloud provider's responsible for the network, and there's uh, little visibility that you have in the network traffic. Um, unlike on in an on-premise system, you can set up your tabs and such wherever you pretty much like to. Uh, that can be a problem, particularly if you don't consider that as you are actually setting up these systems. uh, Similar sort of with these software as a service kind of solution, and I'm considering like Outlook 365 and Gmail and such, where you do lose a lot of the logs. So it's not just the plain network traffic, but for example, your mail logs, uh, your DNS logs, the more of that you outsource, the less visibility you have. And these are really sort of some of the network choke points that you need visibility into in order uh, to really see what's going on uh, in your organization.
0: Yeah, we've, uh, inside my consulting practice, we, we're actually butted up against that exact problem with Office 365. And while it's a great way to deploy um, a you know, somewhat hardened infrastructure for mail and messaging with inside an organization and kind of outsource it, what we're finding mm. is things for things like, uh, like targeted spear phishing attacks, we lose the granularity of the logs of what happened. And yep. nobody at Microsoft really seems to be able to tell us how the API really kind of digs into it. Yep. So it's great you off, you offload some of that, but you definitely lose the visibility.
1: Yeah, now you can, you know, at least get some security back. You can get some mitigating controls in place, like two-factor authentication, which I think is a is a must for any deployment like that. It's almost negligent if you don't do that. Uh, I heard with Office three hundred and sixty five specifically, if you're large enough, if you negotiate the right contract, you can get access to the logs, Uh, but it's tricky and. I remember a couple of years back, uh, one incident, uh, one of these typical business email compromises where the attacker added a forward to address to the Outlook 365 configuration. So now the attacker got copies of all the emails. What was critical for them was uh, to really be able who to notify, like which emails did the attacker receive uh, with respect to uh, what PII was leaked as a result of this email forwarding. And... um, and there was very little, and actually that really exploded the cost of the incident. Uh, it was like the business email compromise itself was just a couple thousand dollars were lost, so nothing too big. Uh, but then the, the incident response uh, went to the hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think even above a million, uh, just to deal with all these problems, involving all the lawyers, doing all the notifications. So, uh, so that turned out to be actually a huge cost
0: oh interesting yeah it's yeah again lo- losing some of that visibility to knowing knowing where to dig will uh, will certainly increase increase costs in other areas. Now, when when you kind of step back and look at a lot of organizations' security programs, and we continue to see breach after breach, uh, it seems like the past month has just been—you know—I think every year we say this is the year of the data breach. Well, 2017 might be a bit <laughs> coming in kind of late in the quarter, but it's it's uh, starting to show its head as being yep. the uh, a big year. You know, where do we see a lot of the? Where do you think a lot of the controls fail that results in these large data breaches, and where can organizations be making improvements in their security programs?
1: Like uh, you know, of course, being with Sense, uh, I'm a huge fan of the critical controls, and you know, I think what they really uh, implement is sort of getting back to the basics. Um, I mentioned this in the intuition detection class, you have to know the network and are defended. So, inventory, being able to assign owners to applications. A lot of times, for example, you know, Equifax, uh, Struts 2. Uh, Struts 2 is a pain to patch, you know? and, and I totally get that. Uh, in particular, if you haven't patched in a while, you know, sometimes people don't sort of do these incremental patches, because there are no security issues that are being addressed there. But then all of a sudden, if you have to go from version five to version 68, you know, uh, then of course, a bunch of stuff breaks, if you would have done all the 63 updates in between these would have been small, relatively painless upgrades. Uh, identifying owners of applications uh, as part of that inventory process I find this is a big deal uh, I keep running into organizations that sort of did their scan okay you no know, are we running struts yes we do you know, hey we found like you know 58 applications that run struts um, what do they do that's sort of the next question uh, when we patch it uh, when can we patch it when can we take them down uh, there's a lot of sort of just basic operations work that has to be done and the way i usually explain it is security has to look like operations if it's as boring as operations then you do good security once security gets exciting uh, then something bad happened. Yeah, so. i it, it,
0: i totally agree with you i think that's it's the when i've again using I'm a big fan of sans and the critical controls and how that's yeah. developed but yeah i mean the the first couple parts of it are not sexy it's it's risk management it's inventory control knowing what users are in it it's stale accounts and it's you know it's not the it's not the sexy stuff that they talk about at RSA, but it's the yeah. basics that fail over and over again.
1: And in the end, it's not that terribly hard to do this. Uh, there are commercial tools, there are open source tools to do that, but you have to do it, and um, that's that's where it usually fails. And so sort of also justifying why did I just spend uh, all that time doing well you know, not much, It's you know, just figuring out what we're doing. And such. So that's, uh, that's always difficult.
0: Yeah. And say, I think to that point, a lot of people don't realize it's, you know, it's when they start their security program that this isn't, it's, it's an investment in time more than it is in cost and to try to figure mm-hmm. some of these things out. And yeah, if you just run a simple Nmap map scan and start exporting things out to spreadsheets, you can start building your inventory. It's not fun work, but it's, it's, doesn't cost you a lot yep. either yep. 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 <laughs> so i think there's there's a, my challenge has been with the industry is where we, we we tend to have the black hats and the rsas that go out there and there's all the new shiny things but mm. you know you go spend you know a quarter million dollars on a new product is not going to necessarily make you safer if you don't have the right pieces in place
1: yeah, and that's that's where you know with buying products uh, what i always tell people buy an api you don't buy a product uh, you want it to integrate with all the other stuff that you have. You definitely want to automate, you know, going back to software sort of machine learning and such. Uh, even without machine learning, uh, the more you automate, the better. You know? uh, and the more reproducible it com- becomes. If you can't automate it, it often means you don't quite understand what you're actually doing. So that's, um, that's with the tools. Like the tools help, and I'm... Uh, Personally, I'm a big fan of open source tools. Uh, I understand that some people like the commercial tools better. Uh, I think in the end it comes down to the to the same thing, uh, but uh, you still have to understand what the tools are doing and they still have to integrate with all the other stuff uh, that you already have done in the past. So um, you know, keep that in mind instead of just buying yet another tool for sort of the the threat of the day kind of you know.
0: Yeah, I think that, and you kind of hit on the point that where we see, at least in, in, in my, my world, has been the tool integration and reporting. Getting the tools to talk to each other or get meaningful data out continues to be a challenge in even the most expensive tools.
1: Right, and like I said, it's not a price issue. Sometimes the open source tools are a little bit easier because they're easier to customize there. Uh, but then again, you know, if you have a vendor, maybe you can lean on the vendor and pay them a little bit extra to do it for you.
0: Now, one of the things I've been trying to get my, my kind of head around of where we will see the next kind of level of maybe tool assistance and, and things that, that need areas of improvement. Do you think there's particular areas as far as a layered network or layered defense kind of approach that there needs to be more focus whether it be um, on the perimeter the network applications or the endpoints
1: uh, i think it's sort of the endpoint lateral movement kind of part uh, the problem with the parameter is you now the perimeter has been disappearing over the last decade or more uh, in particular now you mentioned cloud already uh that sort of you know extends your perimeter yet again or or makes it more fragile uh you have to find instead of a like an outright parameter I always think you have to find sort of choke points inside your network, things like DNS servers, your Active Directory server, where a lot of sort of the the threats come together in your network, and add more monitoring in those spots. Uh, I think that's where you get sort of the the best bang for the buck when it comes to monitoring uh, versus you know spending a lot of time on the perimeter. Now I do collect a lot of firewall logs; they're very interesting for us. But uh, as the Shield Internet Storm Center, because it sort of shows the global distribution that we have, but for a normal network, probably there are better things to spend your time at than looking at packets that your firewall dropped.
0: Oh, gotcha. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's, and I think that's a challenge that, that we're, we're certainly seeing. You know, there's the, the constant numbers of, hey, there's just not enough analysts, there's not enough people to throw at a lot of these things. And, you know, sometimes it's just a, it's a resource allocation problem. But I'm I'm sure as you teach too, you you get a lot of people that kind of come up to you for career advice. I'm kind of curious what's the what's the most common question you might get uh, when you're teaching about people that from people in your class about you know how to get started in information security.
1: Well, I don't get a lot of those that already that that need to be started. You know, by the time they hit something like intrusion detection class, they they already they're already in the field. But um, uh, somewhat related to that, uh, SANS now also has its graduate school, you know, STI. And there we are trying sort of to build more careers. And really the problem we're trying to address there, and I think that's something where sort of security professionals have to look at, is uh, in the end, uh, yes, you can be a very capable analyst or such, but they do take it. And uh, I think what's missing right now is sort of that that layer between the techie and sort of your hardcore financial management sort of C layer. Uh, Someone who's actually able to explain in their words what security is doing and why they're doing it. Equifax may be a little bit example where that sort of failed, you where know, they didn't recognize the value of additional uh, security. Sony, I think uh, their CEO is sort of on the record of saying that he doesn't see it worthwhile spending like $3 million on a $1 million problem. That was before they had a big breach, which cost them way more than a million dollars. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, that's the hard part in security. But when I talk about uh, web application security, I always tell people, you know, I can't tell you how to prevent every single breach, but what you really have to be able to do as a good security person is know the risk that you're exposing yourself by doing something. Like, yes, you know you want a mobile application, a mobile front end for your web application. Fine, you need that to com- compete, you know, uh, that mobile front end. But you need to know, you need to explain to management, hey, if we do that, then the risk of a breach went up by X, we can reduce that to X divided by 10 if we do X minus C and, Z and um, take certain security controls. But that's the kind of thinking I think where really you have to get to as security professional is not preventing every breach, but knowing what the risk of one is and then minimizing the impact and being able to detect it quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's an, it's something that you know, maybe I, I hope it's changing within the information security community is that we really need to start talking more in that language of risk and business as opposed to just purely the, the bits and the bytes. Uh, because ultimately, somebody's got to write that check. They have to approve a program. They have to approve a product or a full-time hire. And if you can't talk to them about the level of risk mitigation that you're providing and you can't communicate that, you're kind of at a disadvantage.
1: Right, and that's uh, uh, exactly the problem I'm trying to address there. Uh, in the end it's about staying in business you know, that's why they hire you they don't hire you to protect consumer data they hire you because they need to protect consumer data to stay in business
0: yeah and i think that's 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 a, a good point that needs actually i think on the information security professional sides we need a have a better understanding because there's too often I've had the discussions with people that are technical and they say, you know, management doesn't get it. They won't, they won't approve this. I said, well, maybe you're not talking to them in the right language, but maybe it's not the best business decision just because you want it. And maybe it's not providing that level of risk. That's worth it to them.
1: Yeah. And like the, the other problem is also that a lot of security professionals, they reject certain defensive mechanisms because they, they're not perfect. Well, uh, you know, same thing. It's about the risk. None, No security measure is perfect. So uh, is it actually worthwhile to take that measure? Uh, why do you take a 10-character password versus an 8-character password? Uh, yes, it's more difficult to remember 10-character password, but does it actually provide a meaningful defense against some attacks? And you can argue, yeah, rainbow tables, they sort of max out around 8, 10 characters. So, like if you do 11, 12 characters, so then we are past the rainbow table limit. And with that, an entire class of attacks is off the table. It can still be brute force, but it's less likely. So, adding a couple extra characters may be worthwhile. And it's just as a very simple example.
0: Gotcha. Now, one of the things I wanted to, to address too is, you know, when we kind of look at the, the, the internet and kind of stepping back to some of the original topics, I mean, certainly the the internet of things and certainly connected devices now that are operate outside mm-hmm. the, the general infrastructure. Are you seeing the, you know, kind of when it comes to organizational threat levels, are those becoming more of a concern that organizations need to focus on? Or is it still more in the consumer space that, hey, you know, these things might get breached or something might bad happen to them and there's a lower risk because it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a door lock or something
1: like that. Yeah. Well, uh, they're kind of tool Phases to that risk. The one is sort of, you know, a basic Mirai bot and stuff like this. Uh, I see this a little bit more as a consumer issue where these devices are really being used as sort of attack platforms. Uh, the more dangerous part where it becomes an enterprise issue is where the device is being used as sort of a beachhead into a into a network. And well, you know, Target is sort of the big example here where their AC control network was sort of used against them. I've seen a couple of times sort of the small medium-sized business, very you know something simple like a security camera uh, was used in order to penetrate the network because the security net camera was exposed to the outside and then sort of provided that pivot point inside the network. So uh, that's certainly happening. I think people talk a bit less about it because it's less visible.
0: Gotcha. So kind of uh, you know what you see is you're not worried about, but. Again, that can also come back to just good network architecture, too. I mean, putting these, yep. these types of devices on their own networks. And, you know, often I see, you know, Sonos devices or different types of things that are plugged into production networks. That kind of worries me that I don't think people appreciate that risk, but goes back to that good network hygiene and inventory of what's there and the ability to detect these things that are put on the network.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's not it's not always that easy. Uh, um, I remember one case uh, that was uh, someone made public Uh, I think it was some inventory scanners. So these scanners that sort of scan barcodes for inventory and uh, they were compromised. They were actually compromised out of the box and they scanned for accounting systems. Well, some of these devices, they have to be connected to your ERP system. I Think about SAP in that case uh, because they do update inventories in that ERP system. Um, I don't know about Target, but I could imagine that for target, uh, you do want to adjust your AC if the store is closed. So, like if the cash register don't have any activity, uh, you you want to sort of lower the AC. Uh, sometimes you need these connections uh, to actually get the value out of these uh, devices. And you know, the, the segmentation is a nice idea, but it doesn't always apply.
0: Interesting. Yeah. It's again, it's. Uh... It's really understanding that, that layer one through three of network architecture and how to, how to protect things. Um, so how can people, listeners out there get involved with the Internet Storm Center?
1: Well, um, tell us what you got, basically. <laughs> That's kind of um, uh, The very simplest thing, way to uh, to interact and to help us out is really if you see something interesting that work, an interesting piece of malware. Like I said, we love it if people email us malware. Uh, they, uh, actually, the best way to, to send it to us is via our contact form on our website because then it doesn't go to any antivirus filter or anything like that. Uh, so um, that's that's one way to help us out. And the next level up uh, would be uh, to set up a sensor. And uh, people always say, "Hey, you know, my home network isn't really interesting, and my work network obviously doesn't allow it me to do it." Well, uh, your home network is actually interesting to us. Uh, on my own home network here, I do right now see about you know every five ten minutes I see one of those Mirai scans coming by. Sometimes the home networks is just what we need in order to sort of see that background radiation again. Um, the best way to help us is we do have a little Raspberry Pi setup. Uh, you basically just download the software from us in order to turn your Raspberry Pi into a sensor. Uh, but even just simple firewall logs, uh, we do support a number of different firewall types. Uh, gladly, always going to talk about uh, extending that or, you know, if you you want to write your own parser a little bit Perl or python goes a long way there uh, to help us out and uh, improve some of our tools
0: gotcha and so uh, what site can they go to to find out information about getting involved Uh,
1: the uh, sunset storm center is isc.sans.edu and then uh, there's a if you go to slash howto.html it has some of the details or contact.html just to contact us. There's also links to that um, somewhere on the homepage. But uh, it's ISE, short for Internet Storm Center. Dot sans, dot edu.
0: Great. And where can people find you? Uh, you have quite a bit of teaching coming up, or is it uh, you you're home for a little bit?
1: Yep. Uh, Not. I'll actually leave for Singapore end of the week. Uh, so I'll be teaching the intrusion detection class in Singapore in two weeks. Uh, then Berlin next in december uh, i'll be teaching in dc i believe it's the defending web application class in december uh, in washington dc so uh, that's sort of for the end of the year my uh, my classes that i still have lined up uh, other than that uh, follow me on twitter joh the first three that is my first name and my last name u-l-l-r-i-c-h
0: great i'll be sure to put all that in the show notes and the links to everything at internet storm center and you know just as a uh, as a security professional i have to thank you for all the work you've done with the storm center it's it's again your your podcast is something i listen to every morning and you know it gets a lot of great uh, information to get my day started so i know it's a it's a lot of work and we all appreciate it and
1: yeah, we always put it as it's supposed to make you smarter when you show up to work in the morning Yeah, and so that i think with five minutes of podcasts you know, so i've tried to go over the current news and also you find that also on the storm center website usually Right on the top is the link to the latest one Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think I, I stopped. Uh, whatever I was doing, at, you know, first thing in the morning, trying to get my daughter out to school while I was listening to it, and there was a thing about the using PCAP and Elasticsearch. I was like, oh, I got to stop. Sent that link to everybody on the team on Slack. So, I, yeah, I looked a little yeah. bit smarter. Right? You're going right into the day. So Yep, <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Johannes. I really appreciate it. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.